Welcome to the Landmark Podcast. I'm Jason Calhoun, pastor of Landmark Pentecostal Church in Texarkana, Texas. We encourage you to visit us on the web at landmarkupc.net for a schedule of services and upcoming events. We pray that you are blessed by the message today. Thank you again for listening. Psalms chapter 16, or the 16th Psalm, and I want to read one verse there, verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And I simply want to use as a subject to teach tonight this thought, entering into the presence of God. Very simple, straightforward subject, but something that we all uh, we all want in our lives to know how to enter in to the presence of God. If in fact this scripture, and I believe it is so, is true, then everything that we have need of and everything that we desire, we can find in the presence of the Lord. And so there is a need for us uh, to get into the presence of God. And I want to, I'm certainly probably not going to cover everything uh, about the presence of God tonight, but I do believe that the scripture gives us some, some insights of how we can enter in to the presence of God and talks about the presence of the Lord often. Why don't we lift up our voices to him and let's pray together right now that his anointing would be upon us in the remainder of this service. Jesus, we look to you once again. We're praying and believing and desirous of your anointing. I'm praying, God, that you would move in this service through your word, touch our hearts, feed our souls. We thank you, God, for the privilege of being here tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. One more time, would you worship the Lord for His Word? Praise God. Thank you for standing and you may be seated. Now I want to establish uh, this fact right here from the beginning. We know that God is omnipresent. We understand that and I'm thankful that we're dealing with a God that can be in more than one place at one time. And uh, isn't that nice to know? And, and while we're talking about that, it's also great to understand that the devil can only be in one place at one time. And we know that he has uh, many imps, demons, whatever you want to call them, spirits that work under his command uh, that that uh, certainly work his is evil in the world, and uh, it may seem like that he's at more than one place at one time, but he is not omnipresent. And, uh, you know, you hear people stand up and testify and talk about how the devil has been on their back and the devil has been on them all day long, and, and uh, you hear somebody else stand up and testify about the same day and in the same time, and they say the devil's been on their back, and he's been bothering them and tempting them, and they've been struggling against him all day long. 
And that's simply not the case because uh, uh, the devil himself cannot be in more than one place at one time. But God can. God can. And I'm thankful that he can. He fills all space. He is everywhere. And the psalmist underscored this in Psalms 139, uh, verses 7 through 12. Whether shall I go from thy spirit, or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into the heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shalt thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. In other words, he's endeavoring to hide or endeavoring not to be seen in the presence of the Lord. Even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. God can see us in whatever situation that we're in. God can look through the darkest of situations that man finds himself in. And uh, he, can, he can discover them. He can help them. He can find them wherever they are. And, uh, you know, sometimes we think about people in sin. We think about people that are in the darkness of sin. And we consider their situation. We think, well, maybe they're too steeped in sin. And they're too far gone. Or they're too far away from the reach of God. According to this scripture, that's not so. But the darkness does not intimidate him. He is able to find them wherever they are. And he's able to save them, deliver them, and set them free. That ought to give somebody hope. And it doesn't matter how far away that you are when you cry out to God. And really that's all he's looking for. Somebody to turn their face to him and begin to cry out to him. And we see instances of it over and over again in the scripture. Matter of fact, when Solomon was dedicating the temple, he prayed a little simple prayer. And he said, God, if any man would just look towards this temple, towards Jerusalem, it doesn't matter how far off they are. If your people would be carried away into a strange land, and we know that that would happen, if they'd be carried away into a strange land, and at some point they would realize they're wrong, and they're, they're straying, and they're backsliding away from you, and desire you in their heart, and they want to, to find their way back to you, God. If they just turn their face towards this temple, I pray that your presence would dwell here in such a way that you would hear their prayer and respond to them wherever they may find themselves. And so we see instances like Jonah when he was in the belly of the well. And uh, the Bible tells us that he turned his face towards, he said, I turned my face towards thy holy temple. And I've often thought in the depths of the sea, in the belly of a well, how could he possibly have his bearings and know the direction of Jerusalem but it was really the direction that his heart was pointing. He was saying, God, I'm turning my heart back to you. And I'm repenting. And I'm crying out to you. And I need you to respond to me. And when he did, 
the Lord did hear him out of the depths of the sea. Just like this scripture talked about, though I go into the depths of the sea, thou art there. You cannot get anywhere that you're not able to be reached and you're not able to be touched by the presence of the Lord if you're hungry to be touched by him. Praise the Lord. Because we're dealing with an omnipresent God. However, there is a difference, and you've heard me speak about this. There is a difference in the omnipresence of God and a God that is everywhere and the manifest presence of the Lord. There's a difference between the two. The manifest presence of God is when God reveals himself by working among us. He's everywhere at all times. That doesn't mean that he's actively working in our lives. And that doesn't mean that he's involved in the affairs of our lives. Unless we open up our hearts and yield to him and we desire him and we hunger for him, he's not going to make an intrusion into our lives. He's not going to trespass into our lives. But we have to hunger for God. And I'm thankful that when we have a hunger for God, an appetite for God, well, the Scripture tells us, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We have a promise that when we get hunger for Him, He has everything that is necessary to satisfy that hunger. He has everything that is necessary to satisfy the thirst that is in our heart. But the prerequisite is, is we've got to be hungry for God. And that's, that's how we enter into the presence of the Lord. We have to desire to be in the place where He's moving. And often when we talk about the presence of God, as people of God, that's what we're talking about is the manifest presence of the Lord. We're not talking about just Him filling all space, but we're talking about being where He's working. We're talking about being where miracles are happening, where the action is, so to speak, and, and where the glory of God is is being manifest among us. And the power of God can, can be sensed and it can be felt. And the anointing of the Lord and the flowing of God's Spirit is there. That is what is different about uh, a church that feels after and is sensitive to the Spirit than uh, perhaps uh, a church that, or what calls itself a church, that is not open to the moving of the Spirit, the moving of the Holy Ghost. There is a difference. And people, when they come and they visit, they ought to be able to feel that difference. I sense something there I don't just feel everywhere else. Uh, they, they may have finer buildings. They may have uh, bigger structures. They may have more amenities. But there's one thing that I feel in that place that I can't feel just anywhere else. I feel... The manifest presence of God. I feel the glory of God. I feel the anointing of the Lord moving and surging in that place. Can I tell you that that is the calling card of Pentecost. That is the difference of apostolic Pentecost. Is the power and the anointing of the Holy Ghost that can be felt. That's why people would come and gather out underneath brush harbors. I mean, and, and swat mosquitoes and, 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 and be out in the elements and, and, and deal with all of the things that they would have to deal with 
because they could feel the, that's why people would go uh, to old ramshackle buildings that uh, back around the turn of the century Pentecost didn't didn't have facilities like this back then they didn't have the facilities that they do have today why would people leave their cathedrals and their stained glass and their all of the amenities of, of, of religion to go out uh, across the tracks somewhere uh, to, a, to a ramshackled building or a place that didn't have all those amenities and, uh, and go and, and endeavor to worship there. I'll tell you why. It's because they could feel something there that they couldn't feel anywhere else. They could experience something there. Pentecost, folks, is an experience. It's not a religion. It's not a denomination. It's an experience with God. Amen. Everything that we, we uphold and everything that we identify with in the Scripture uh, started with the day of Pentecost, the establishment of the church, when this experience of the Holy Ghost was poured out. Amen. In Acts chapter 2. That's how it all started. That's how it came alive and it began. And that's what's going to keep it alive. And that's how it's going to stay alive in the 21st century. Is by keeping the Spirit of God moving and flowing in our midst. Amen. It'll come to a screeching halt. It'll die on the vine. It'll completely fizzle out if there is no Spirit involved in it. Can you say praise the Lord? And so we need the presence of God. The psalmist said, Psalms 51, this is David. He said, cast me not away from thy presence. He understood the importance. You know, David was a man that lived in a time when the Holy Ghost had not been poured out, but yet he was a spiritual man in a sense because even he, and maybe he didn't know to the fullness of what he was speaking of because we know that there are several psalms that are seemingly prophetic, that he is even giving insights upon the Messiah coming and uh, different things that are really ahead of his time. And he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. What did he know about the Holy Ghost? Well, I believe that this was a man that was hungry for God. And he's speaking insightfully here. And, and we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And uh, we know that God moving through him was, was maybe giving us a little insight on really what was to come. But what he was for sure talking about is don't let your presence get away from me. That that I feel when I'm in the presence of God and I feel the working of your power. He was able through his worship and through his love for God and his desire to draw close to the Lord. He was able to get to a place that he could feel the presence of God moving. And he said, I, I don't want to try to live, exist, or get by and survive without the presence of the Lord. Cast me not away from thy presence. The Bible says in the Old Testament, or it says that the Old Testament is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. And the tabernacle is a template in the Old Testament of New Testament approach to God or the way that we know that all of those things in the tabernacle and then later in the temple were really foreshadowings of a relationship that man would have personally with God. 
And there's no way that I could go through all of this and talk about all of the articles of furniture and all of the meanings of things uh, in that Old Testament tabernacle. We do know one thing, that it was not comely in its appearance on the outside. Uh, It was covered in beaver skin. It was not something that people would look at on the outside and say, my goodness, man, what a magnificent what a magnificent place where God's presence dwells. Uh, it, that wasn't the attraction. It was what was on the inside that was the attraction. It was what was going on within that holy place that was the attraction. And you know, uh, really, that, that is typical of you and I and the way that it should be. There should be a relationship within us with God that uh, is something that emanates out of us, that is the thing that attracts people to Pentecost. Because plastic Pentecost and, and synthetic things, they, they, may, they may get up a, a crowd for a little while, but that's not going to keep people. And that's not going to really impress them in the long term. But, but what really is going to minister to people and going to help people is something that they, again, can feel and they can, they can identify with that has changed a person's life. And we know that real change comes from the inside out. Amen? Praise God. It starts with a person's heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You, 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 you can't, no matter how much you try to put up the veneer, and no, no matter what kind of facade that you put on, uh, you can only go along with that. And you can only keep up the act for so long. If it's not in your heart, it's eventually going to emanate out, and it's going to express itself in some way. Amen. That's why people's speech sometimes portrays them. Uh, you know, you hang around somebody, you hear them talk long enough, you find out more about them. You find out that maybe their heart is not nearly as pure as they put on at first. Uh, maybe, maybe they don't have uh, as pure motives as you first initially thought because uh, what's in the heart comes out, right? Yeah, that's just the way it works. And so this... This tabernacle, I want to talk about it because the every place and every stage of this tabernacle really is uh, has a foreshadowing of what you and I would experience or be able to experience in the day that we live in right now, and it has significance to us. I don't believe that the Lord would waste 50 chapters in the Bible describing the tabernacle for it just to be forgotten and not to show some type of meaning and have some kind of worth to you and I. I know a lot of people tried to dismiss certain parts of the Old Testament that they didn't understand, but I'm believing that all of it has a thread that leads us to something Well, the Bible said it leads us to Christ. It leads us to a deeper relationship with God. Amen. And so we learn a lot from the placement of these instruments and and the furniture that was in the tabernacle. First of all, when you approached 
the tabernacle, before you was able to enter in uh, into the tent itself, when you just was in the courtyard of the tabernacle, which was uh, a makeshift house of God that would travel with the people of God as they were traveling in the wilderness. They were a people really at that point without a land, and they were nomadic, and God's spirit or, or God would move, and they would move with uh, the cloud that would direct them by day, which is typical of the Spirit. And uh, so they, they were led and directed by the Lord and traveled. And, and we know that during that process, God was working things out of them. And uh, in fact, it wasn't, they didn't get to travel a straight line from Egypt to the promised land. That, that journey should have only taken a little bit of time, but it took 40 years. Why? Because God was working things out of them. I'm going to tell you, it's important before we obtain the promises that God has for us, the goodness and the, and the blessings that God wants to bestow upon us, it's important that some things be worked out of us. And uh, there's a lot that they were... Uh, in need of learning that they were only able to learn through the experiences of the wilderness. First of all, and, and I'm kind of digressing here, but they had, they had to learn that this was a daily trust and walk of faith. When they were in Egypt, they planted their crops, they reaped their crops, they ate their food that way. But as they were traveling in the wilderness... In different places at different times, they had to trust in the Lord uh, to rain manna down. It came with the dew of the morning, and it would show up on the ground. It was a, uh, we don't know exactly what it looked like. We have some descriptions in the Bible about what it may have looked like and what it tasted like. And they were to gather it up as much as they would need for that day and no more. And if they gathered too much and tried to hoard it, it would breed worms and it would begin to stink and become putrid and unedible and they were not able to partake of it. And it was of no use to them. What was God trying to teach them? He's trying to teach them that the relationship that you're going to have with me is going to require diligence on your part every day. It's going to require faithfulness on your part every day. You're not going to be able to stock it up. You're not going to be able to say, well, I, I'll just, you know, I'm going to be lazy tomorrow, so I'm going to get more today than I, you know, I'm going to come Sunday night, I'm going to get tanked up for all week. I'm never going to have to pray until next Sunday rolls around. Or at least I'm going to make it to Wednesday night, and then I can, I can gimp in here and, and come in on spiritual crutches and get what I need from God on Wednesday. No, he said, you're going to have to come before me every day and gather manna because uh, I want you to learn how to trust me and live for me daily. That's why the scripture says, give us this day our daily bread. Amen. So we pray daily. We we, we get in the Word of God on a daily basis. And uh, these are things that we need to do. And, and so they, they had to learn how to trust God. And then, of course, on the sixth day, they gathered up twice as much as they would need for a day. And it would take care of them on the Sabbath because the Lord was trying to get them to understand a cycle and a day that was set aside for Him. And this is the, you're giving me this day. Uh, the Sabbath that is totally dedicated unto me. 
And he's giving them a little understanding about setting things aside that are sacred to him. He's giving them some understanding that you've got to dedicate some things entirely to me. And later on, they would understand that, that they would have to give of their increase. They would have to dedicate, take it out first of all. This is the first fruit. We're not taking it out last. We're not going to use up the 90. And, and if we got 10% left over, then we'll give that. But we take the 10 right off the top and we give that to God. And then we partake of the 90%. And we believe and trust God that He's able to sustain us with the 90% than for us to take and, and use everything that we need and in hope that there's going to be enough left over for God. God said, I don't want your leftovers. I want your first fruits. Because I'm the one that gave it to you in the first place. I'm the one that gave it to you to begin with. And I'll continue if you'll trust me to bless you and give to you all that you have need of. Isn't that right? Haven't we all proven that? That that's the way that God's, God's economy works. That's, that's the way God, amen, He's true to His Word. Some people get down to the end and say, man, well, this is, I don't have enough. And so I'm going to give him 8%. I'm going to give him 7%. That's not how it works. We give him the first fruits and he takes care of it. And it seems like he multiplies the rest and, and, and makes, it, makes it stretch and makes it work. And our needs are taken care of. But the first thing that you would come in contact with, was the most imposing piece of furniture and the largest piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle compound. And that was the altar. The altar. Now there's a reason why it was the biggest and the most prominent piece of furniture. Because if you ignored this, nothing else mattered. If you tried to go around and circumvent this, nothing else in the entire Tabernacle compound would do you any good because there was things that happened in that altar that was seen all the way through to the holies of holies. For instance, blood that was shed at that altar was carried all the way through and poured out upon the mercy seat. And so you, you, you was wasting your time if you didn't spend the proper time and do due diligence at the altar and do what was necessary to be done at the altar. It was a waste of time to attempt to go any further. Can I tell you it's still that way today? That we steal the altars where it, where it all begins? Now I know we're living in a day when they try to circumvent the altar and they, they try to tell people that repentance is not all that necessary and, and when you get up and come down to the front then really you, you've repented. And I understand that some people, they, they don't have to spend as much time or a longer period of time as others. Uh, but you know what I am finding out is people that really come and fully repent and die out. That's what repentance is, is death to self-will, death to sin, and saying, God, I repent. I turn my back on the things of the world. Those kind of people linger a little longer than folks that just come down and say, well, you know, uh, just kind of haphazard about it. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, everybody that babbles a little bit isn't getting the Holy Ghost. 
I don't want to bust any bubbles, but I'm just telling you what I know to be the truth. Amen. There's not the witness and the fruit of it in their life. Amen. If you get the real Holy Ghost, it's going to bring change in your life. I said it's going to bring change in your life. Every part of you, you become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And, and uh, things that, that uh, uh, the old you is done away with when you really get the experience of the Holy Ghost. But the altar is an important part. And before you can visit any other part of the tabernacle, you had to stop at the altar. And you had to spend time at the altar. And it was not a pretty place. In fact, there was a lot of wreathing and wrestling and gurgling. It was a place of death. I don't mean this to be gross or, or anything, but, you know, we tried to pretty it up a lot. But, you know, I've been around this for a long time, most of my life. And, man, I've seen people come down and really repent. And they're crying their eyes out. And they're getting earnest before God. And, and nowadays, before they can, ever, they can ever get started real good repenting, we're trying, to, we're trying to yank them up and get them beyond that. And we're trying to push them a little further than that. And we're, here, here let, me, let me wipe your nose a little bit. Let me, let me dry your tears for you. And we try to pretty it up. But that altar had blood crusted on it. It had flies buzzing up around it. It didn't smell good there. Amen. It wasn't a pretty place. Now I understand we're not dealing with the Old Testament tabernacle and we're in a different covenant and a different testament. I understand all of that. But I think there is some things that are relative here that you cannot pretty this thing up. You cannot gloss this thing over. It still takes old-fashioned repentance. And sometimes this old, this old man doesn't want to die. I said this old man doesn't want to die sometimes. This old man struggles against that. And sometimes, uh, you know, there's some, there's some wreathing that goes on. And there's some, there's some moaning and groaning that takes place. But it's necessary that that man die out fully if he's going to receive what he needs to in the presence of the Lord. If you're going to get the Holy Ghost, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to repent. That's a prerequisite. You can't get around repentance and receive the Holy Ghost. You can't live in sin and get the Holy Ghost. You've got to clean it up. You've got to get it out. Amen. You've got to depend upon God to help you to do that. And the only way that He will is by fully turning your back on it. Turning your back on it and yielding and surrendering your self-will to God. Because there's things in us that love that. And we've been doing that. And we've been partakers of that. And we've been involved in that. And there's a part of our flesh that 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 wants those things and craves those things obviously has an appetite for those things but but that has to change and the only way it can there has to be a dying out to that old man can you say praise the lord and so it's important and before we can go on paul said in 1 corinthians 1:29 that no flesh shall glory in his presence no flesh should glory in his presence. This flesh 
has to be crucified. Amen. I know it's an, difficult for us to totally understand in our human logic, but, but Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. We're more alive spiritually when this old man, I'm talking about the, 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 the will and the, and the desire for sin and the carnality of man. I'm talking about that, that that is in us that desires the things of the world. When that dies, we're more alive in Christ than we were before. Can you say praise the Lord? And so it's, it's important that we visit the altar uh, if we're going to enter into the presence of the Lord. And, of course, if you go a little further, you know, there was, like I said, there was animals that were tied down on the horns of that altar and sacrificed there and quite an ordeal that goes on. And, you, you know, I, I haven't, of course, ever been involved or seen that happen, but I have dressed a few deer before and... And uh, you can't do that job without getting blood on you, right? And uh, getting stains on your clothes. And, and so there was a laver that they came to. Before they went any further, they had to wash in that laver. You know, uh, I like to look at this, this particular way. You can't carry the sorrow that happens at repentance, you can't carry that in your relationship with God and be successful serving Him. At some point, you've got to have faith that He has forgiven me, that He has cleansed me. And I've often told people this way, when you, when you repent of your sins, you have to have faith that He forgives you. He said, in his word, he tells us, he said, if, if you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. That's the word of God. So we have to have faith that he'll forgive me. Just like he said, if I repent, then at that moment, he's able to forgive me. I don't have to pay penance. I don't have to go for years on probation. But I can, I can enter in a little further. And when I do, i gotta, I got to go beyond. You know, godly sorrow worketh repentance. But you cannot stay in a place of sorrow or condemnation will enter in. And the Bible said in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Now, therefore, there is no condemnation in them that are in Christ Jesus. And so he washes that off. And he goes a little further. And we could talk about that washing of the word that takes place, but I, I, I want to apply the word of God here a little further in the scripture, but that shame, that guilt, that consciousness that has been tainted by everything, you know, uh, the memory of, of what you used to be and what you used to do, what you was involved in. Aren't you thankful that when you came to the altar and the blood was shed, for our remission, the Bible said, when we go to the waters of baptism, there's remission of sin. And that's really what this is also typical of. Is that labor is, is baptism. But we're getting that cleaned off of us and cleansed off of us. And I'm thankful. I, I was just seven years old when I was baptized in Jesus' name. I, I know that I hadn't committed any 
heinous sins or anything like that. But I can tell you that when I come up out of the water, I didn't know what I was expecting necessarily. But as a seven-year-old boy, I did have faith in God. When I come up out of the water, I felt like I, I was felt so pure and I felt so clean and I felt so good and I felt so wonderful in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to tell you, that's what it is when the when the waters of baptism come upon you and cleanse you and wash you and purify you. It takes the guilt and the shame and the heaviness and the burden and the, the condemnation and the conscious uh, memories of all of those things that you've done and committed. God is able to wash that away and give you freedom so that when you endeavor to worship God and come into the presence of the Lord. You're not living with the guilt of that. You're not living with the shame of that. There's nothing that, that the devil would love anymore is to stop your worship and stop your advancement in the presence of God because of some guilt and because of some shame of the past. Amen. you got to trust that that's been washed away. you got to have faith that it's been cleansed and washed off. Of you. Hallelujah. Let's clap our hands and give praise to the Lord. Then, as you enter a little further, there's this, and I'm just hitting the main pieces of furniture here. There's this lamp, golden candlesticks, that is there. And this was a very intricate piece of furniture, very ornate. It's made of beaten gold. And so I'm assuming it took somebody very skilled and very talented to make it because it was hollowed out on the inside, kind of like, a, I guess, a cam candelabra. And, and that oil was, by the flame, was pulled up through it, and it gave a light in this dark place in, in the inside of the tabernacle. And so this was something that was very... And, and even in the description of building and constructing these instruments and these pieces of furniture, you'll find that there was very specific instructions of how to do it. And matter of fact, when, and I'm kind of going to a different place in Scripture, but when uh, the temple, later on the temple was ravaged, and, and uh, we know that, it was basically plundered and pillaged and, and it was sacked. And the instruments was taken away and used in bell worship. When it came time to restore the temple, we know that the king called for priests that knew how to work with that and to restore that knew how to, and he called them this, he said, mend, that know how to mend these instruments. And in other words, restore them back to their proper use. These are such sacred instruments, we can't just go out and buy another one. We got to know, we got to get somebody that's skilled that knows how to, to restore these and get them in working order again. Scrape the bale blood off of them and, 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 and if there's any damage to them, be able to mend them and put them back together again. And so you understand that this took skilled hands to make this golden candlesticks. But you know, as beautiful as it was, and as much talent as it took to make it, it was worthless 
if there was no oil in it. As ornate and intricate as it was, it was worthless if there was no oil in it. Let me just kind of show you what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you, people can have talent, and they can have ability, they can have skill, and if there's no anointing there, it's just hollow. It may look good, but it's not serving its purpose. It's not really doing what it was intended to do. I've been to a few gospel concerts. You guys ever been to any gospel concerts? Raise your hand. Come on, that's not a sin. Go ahead and raise your hand. Been to a gospel concert or two. And I've been entertained. I've been inspired. I mean, I've heard singing that you couldn't slide a piece of paper between the harmony. I mean, it was just so tight. And it was just great. Instruments and everybody was just flowing good. There was skill. There was talent involved. But you know, there's just a little something missing there. If the Holy Ghost is not anointing it, there's just a little something different about it. It might be entertaining, but as far as it being able to really minister to me, that's, that's another subject. It takes the anointing to minister. It may be inspiring, but it's really not ministering to the needs. But I, I've been in services and people was plunking on a guitar that was out of tune or maybe it had a string missing off of it. And they couldn't carry a tune in a bucket themselves, but they were singing the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And I felt the power of God minister down deep in something in me. It's just like that golden candlestick. There's got to be oil. There's got to be anointing flowing through it for it to be able to, to fulfill the purpose and give the light. If we're going to be able to be a light in this dark world, we're going to have to have the anointing of the Holy Ghost flowing through us. Come on, somebody raise your hands and acknowledge that right now. God, I want you to, to move through me. Now, Reading about this, studying about this, one of the signs that the oil was getting lower was running out as it would, it would start smoldering. When it's running low, it starts kind of getting smoky. And it's not emanating and burning as bright. Or maybe it's stopped up down in there and there's soot down in there and it's not flowing like it should. Matter of fact, in the oil that would flow through this, it had to be right kind of oil. Matter of fact, you've heard me preach about how that they stored that oil in certain places, down in cellars at certain temperatures, because it was so sacred. It had to be kept just right. You didn't want anything gumming up or stopping up the candlesticks that would give light for the important duties of the priest as he is ministering in the house of the Lord or in the tabernacle. I want to just tell you it is important to, that, that the anointing be able to flow and that we keep the oil in, in this lamp as it were. Keep it full, amen, and keep it flowing because we don't want to be sending off some kind of, of, of signal other than portraying the light that we need to send out to a world that needs the light and that needs the help. Praise the Lord. Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. 
Only through you staying connected to the vine can the branches bear fruit. I mean, that's, that's elementary, right? I don't go out here and chop a limb off. So, well, this next spring, this little limb, I'm going to take it home and put it in my bedroom. And, and this next spring, I'm going to get an apple. I'm going to pick it off this branch. Because I went out to Washington and I like the apples out there. And I'm going to take this branch that I got off an apple tree. And I'm going to bring it home with me. If it's not connected to the vine, if it's not connected to the trunk of the tree, I'm not going to get much. I'm not going to get many much fruit, right? Because it's, it's been severed. The connection is gone. The only way that it can produce is to stay. I'm going to tell you the only way a church and a person can remain fruitful, individuals, ministries can remain fruitful, is stay connected to the vine. Stay connected to Him, to have the relationship with Him. Amen? We cannot produce the right things. We'll die. You know, when you cut something off from the vine, it begins at that moment. It, it, may, it may look or appear to be one thing, but it's dying from that moment. Had a uh, friend of mine that built a house, and they wanted, when they built the house, they wanted to keep a, a certain tree alive on the place, and they wanted to build the house down behind it. And so they built the house. What they did not calculate was is all of the construction equipment that was going to be driving in and across that yard there by where that tree was, around the tree. And, and somehow or another, all of the trauma of those equipments passing concrete trucks, all the pickup trucks, all the other things, driving up and around that tree, it, it destroyed something in the root system. And it didn't show it right off. He said, matter of fact, that spring thing bloomed out. He said, it wasn't until later I started noticing little signs that, you know, maybe something isn't exactly right. And he called a, I didn't know there was such a thing and, until he told me this story, and this has been many years ago. He called a tree doctor out to look at the tree. He said, you know what, I can, I can do a few things and, and I can get this tree to appear like it's alive for a little bit longer. He said, but I'm just telling you, this tree, you might as well get a saw out and cut it down. Or get somebody to come out here and remove it because it's not going to survive we can't keep it up because it's dying because there's some things that you don't see in, underneath the surface here that have been damaged and it's been damaged to the point of it's, not, it's, it's irreparable and it's not going to recover. So it's dead. And I begin to think about that, how that things can go on in a person's life and that they don't have that root system down there and tapped into the right things. You know, there may have been appearance for a while that can be kept up, but eventually death comes. First of all, it's not going to yield the fruit that it used to yield. And then suddenly leaves don't even come out on it. And then branches start falling off of it. And a little bit at a time it dies and it perishes. And it goes back to, to the elements. Oh, God, help us to keep ourselves alive. Praise the Lord. And that's by tapping in to the sources 
that God has given to us in, in keeping ourselves renewed in the spirit of our God. And after leaving that golden candlesticks, the Bible talks about two different objects there. It talks about the table of showbread. And we know that this was a very special thing that was there prepared daily, fresh daily for the priest. And it was placed there on that, that table. And then if it was not used, you couldn't use the leftovers for the next day, but it was daily placed there, fresh. And this is bread, which is typical most readings that I have uh, studied concerning this relate this to the Word of God. I'm going to tell you, we need the Word of God on a regular basis. And we need a fresh Word from God. That's why church and Bible study and things like this is so important to us. Because if we're going to do what we need to do, if the priest was going to have the strength to sustain him in the duties that he had, he had this bread that was prepared and it was fresh for him. I'm thankful that the Word of God, doesn't matter how many times you've read it, doesn't matter how many times you've, you've heard it preached, it comes to your, your life fresh every time if you're open to it. And isn't it a fascinating thing how that you can read the Word of God and think you understand and know the Word of God and then something else will just leap out off the page to you that is applicable to where you're at at the uh, specific time that you're at and you just say, man, wow, i never seen that before. What is that? That's God giving you what you need. That is Him giving you your daily bread, as it were, and, and giving you a fresh understanding to help you at that particular time and minister to you at that particular time in your life. That's why when the Word of God is anointed, but when it's preached through an anointed man of God, and this is the method that God has chose to, to save them that believe, the Bible says, that when it's preached and it, it's, it's a, it, we're, we're being fed by the Word of God, and when we receive the Word of God through the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God, it feeds our soul feeds our spirit man. It strengthens us. And that is again why it's so important that we come to the house of God because the spirit knows what we need. The spirit is able, the Bible said the word of God, amen, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. It knows how to find where we are, amen, at every point of our life. Amen. And what we needed a month ago is different from what we need tonight. And what we need tonight is going to be uh, different than what it's going to be in the future. But thank God that He knows what the future is. He knows what tomorrow holds. And He gives us what we need as far as the spiritual nutrients are concerned so that we can face that. Amen. People, they enter into this time of year. They've lived long enough. They get their flu shots, right? I mean, they're lining up everywhere getting flu shots. Amen. And uh, people that, that know uh, this time of the year when it gets cold like this, the immune system is, takes a beating. And so some folks, they bolster up on their vitamin C. Amen. If I could, I'd send some home with some folks. 
Go ahead and start now where you don't have any excuses. Just want to go ahead and get you some vitamin C. I'll get you started now. I'm just joking. A little bit. You know, I, I had to one time, I didn't even know there was such a thing. I had to take prescription level vitamin D. They said, you take one a week. I said, what good would that little thing do for one in a whole week? He said, oh, man, that's powerful. He said, it's time released. My God, I hope I, I wish I could get a handful of vitamin C for some folks and give it to them by the units. And say, here, take this. Amen. Maybe this will see you through the winter. Amen. We won't have to worry about you missing half the 50% of the church services because of sickness. Amen. If we lived in a perfect world. But we don't. But we can take care of ourselves spiritually by partaking of the Word of God. But just as the altar is no good without a sacrifice, and just as the candlestick is no good without oil in it, the showbread does us no good unless we consume it, right? Some way or another, we've got to be able to receive. The Bible talks about receiving the engrafted word of God. It doesn't matter how pleasantly it's served. If you don't have an appetite for it, you're not going to consume it. I, uh, I've seen people that, that sat down at a table that was spread with the best of foods and because they were sick or because they were not hungry or because they had just eaten something else, they were... It didn't matter how well it was presented, what kind of garnish was on the plate, what, what, how great it was cooked, how well it was described to them, how, how savory it smelled, any of that. It doesn't matter if they're not hungry. How do I stir up a hunger for the Word of God? Well, sometimes you've got to eat when necessarily you don't feel like eating, don't you? Don't you know when you're sick sometimes to get your appetite back, you've got to eat a little bit to get an appetite stirred up again. Our friend Brother Dykes had been sick all this time and uh, people in that kind of a shape, you know, there's certain things they got to start doing again that they don't necessarily feel like doing at the time. They don't feel like walking. They don't feel like getting up. They don't feel like pushing themselves. But sometimes you're going to get better. you got to push yourself. And sometimes when you say, well, I, I just don't feel a need tonight to get to the house of God. you got to push yourself. And the more you pray and the more you worship and the more you hear the Word of God preach, the more you realize, I need that. So if you're going through a dry time, the worst thing you need to do is to let that dry time separate you from the house of God. Amen. Because when you, you get a little taste of this and, and you get a little bit more of this and you get the strength from it, it'll put a desire in your heart to receive more and consume more. Amen. It's kind of like a baby. It, it has to experience different foods and then it gets an appetite for it. We, we've got to receive the Word of God. And then, of course, there was that Altar of incense. Altar of incense that they would come to. And we know that this is typical of really two things that we could talk about. It talks about it being an altar of incense that would 
give up sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. It talks about the incense that were upon the altar. They would bring coals from the altar and then place the incense on those coals and it would go up unto the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor. Those incense, you could not, again, I'm getting back to this daily thing, you could not just take a big chunk of incense and place it on there. But Leviticus 6 and 12 talks about it being beaten small. In other words, it wasn't meant for you to just take a big hunk of it and place it on there and say, that'll do me for a while. And I won't have to come back and put more on. But it was beaten small, meaning that you had to come back and keep replenishing it. And that's the way our prayer life is, and that's the way our worship is. It doesn't matter how much I worship God today. He's still worthy of my worship tomorrow. And I'm going to have to put some more incense on. No matter how much I pray today, I'm going to need to come back and pray and seek His face again. Because uh, the incense are beaten small, and they're meant to be put on there again. And I read somewhere the priest would have to do this uh, as much as 700 times. 700 times a year. This was something that was continual thing. Amen. And then there, there had to be this, for the incense to be able to, to, to give forth their, their sweet-smelling savor, there had to be heat involved in it. There had to be coals, hot coals that were used. And what's this speak of? This speaks of our fervents. What did the Bible say? It said the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availing much come on just passionless mundane well rehearsed practiced memorized heartless prayers don't get the job done but when there's fervence involved and there's heat involved in it you got a little passion involved in it and you're crying out to God and there's tears involved and there's there's a crying out to God of desperation and there's hunger involved in it. That's when it sends up a savor unto the Lord. That's when it gets the attention of God. Worship that is just calisthenics. Worship that is just rehearsed. Worship uh, that is just going through the motion it is of none effect. But when you get worship that comes from a person's heart and down deep in their spirit and has sincerity in it it has a way of sending up a savor into the heavens that God said I like that. I'm going to bless that. Amen. I'm going to let them come on in. Praise the Lord. And it was that incense uh, amen that prepared the way for them to go into the holies of holies. Uh, amen. And be able to pour that blood out upon the mercy seat. It was that, that incense that was the last thing that they would do before they would go through that veil that stood between them and the holy place. I'm going to tell you, before we enter in, one of the last things that we've got to do is we've got to prepare our hearts through prayer and we've got to learn how to worship God and give praise to God and it must come from our heart and deep down in our spirit. It's got to be sincere. It's got to be something that comes Amen. From the, the honesty and the humility of our heart that says, God, I want you more than I want anything else. That's how we enter into the presence of God. There's been a lot of debate of how that priest, and I, I'm fixing to conclude, how that priest was able to, you know, there's all kinds of scholars that have had different ideas of how if this veil was there and he had an incense 
a censer in one hand and, and blood in the other to pour out. How did he get through that veil? It was all kind that of, maybe the, maybe it didn't hang all the way across and he went around the one side of it. That's one interpretation. I'm not here to make anybody's mind up about that. I'm not sure I know exactly how it happened or how it took place. Some say it was a supernatural thing that took place and they kind of mystify this and, and they, they bring that out. But you know what? I know how it happens for you and I. I know how it happens for you and I because it's a work that was done at Calvary. Amen? And you can stand with me, but I want to read this scripture before we dismiss tonight. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, it gives us an idea of how we get through that barrier that is there. It says that at that time we were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus ye are sometimes, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall, a partition between us. Amen. We're made nigh by the blood. And that middle wall, because of Calvary, something I couldn't do, something that I'm unworthy to enter into, but it's he that did the work. It's he that went to the cross. It's he that shed his blood so that I could enter in to the throne room and get help and get strength because what I need, again, is in the presence of God. I said what you need is in the presence of God. The strength you need, the ministry you need, the help you need, the, the direction you need, the guidance you need, everything you need. Israel, they needed, they needed their sins to be rolled ahead. They needed their sins to be dealt with. And it was very important that this work be done. And you and I, it goes beyond just that. It goes beyond uh, uh, just our sin being taken care of. Our sin is taken care of when we're obedient to, to each one of these things. Repentance, amen, and baptism in Jesus' name. And we receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Uh, but it's all available to us because of one reason. And that's because He went to the cross uh, and He shed His blood that should have been ours. Uh, he took the guilt and the shame that should have been ours. Uh, amen. He took he took the sin of the world, my sin, your sin, upon him and died for our iniquities. Amen. For our transgressions against him. Amen. He, he took all of that so that he could break down that middle wall of partition. Amen. And we have access to him. We need to, you know, I can't think of many things that be worse than to have access to something that you need. And not avail yourself to it. Amen. Not, 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 not realize it. I've heard of people. I read a book about a guy that went up in Alaska. He was kind of a misguided young man. He went up in Alaska and he was going to live on the wild. Well, the wild ended up living on him. And he got up there and he crossed over a river. And he got over there and he wasn't calculating the spring thaw and, 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 and the water's coming out of the mountains from the snow and, and it caused a, such a flood across that, 
river that he had crossed that he, was, he, could not, he could not, of course, swim it because the waters were too cold. He'd get hypothermia. And he knew that, and it was unpassable. And so he was on this side, literally starving to death. And, and the tragic thing was, is just less than a mile, I can't remember if it was downstream or upstream, there was a, there was a way to cross. There was a, some type of bridge or makeshift cable that went across that he could have gotten on and, and, and got over to safety. But he didn't even know it was there. He had access within his fingertips. It was well within his capabilities. But he was unable. And he stayed over there and starved to death. I'm going to tell you, it would be a tragic thing for us to need strength and not avail ourselves to it. It would be a tragic thing for us to come to church in need of direction and not get it. It would be a tragic thing for us to come to the house of God and need, need uh, uh, some help in our spirit and need God to touch us and minister to us in some way and we not plug into it. God, help me to tap into the presence of God. Amen. Let's lift our hands again and give him praise. Come on, let's give him praise. Let's give him thanks. Amen. I thank you, Jesus, for your word tonight. Thank you for the help, the strength that we receive from the word of God tonight. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.